Welcome to A Week in the News and our Are You Okay Ed edition. I'm your host Chris Scott and today I'm joined by Mike Kelly. Hi Mike. Hi Chris. And Kate Proctor. Hi Kate. Hello. Um, last night was the first TV debate, if you can call it that, of the leaders, Ed Miliband and David Cameron. Um, Mike, we'll go to you first. How do you think they did? It was an interesting bit of TV. Uh, I found it interesting and a bit frustrating. Interesting, it's nice to see Jeremy Paxman back. He obviously dusted down and let off the leash. But frustrating because if you compare it to the uh, last TV debates before the 2010 election, you actually got to hear what the leaders had to say, what the policies were, what we were voting for. With this one, it's very much trial by Paxman and how they survived it. So in that respect, I think Miliband survived it a lot better than uh, Cameron. I think I've never seen him look so uncomfortable in front of the cameras before. He's literally mm. squirming in his seat. Straight from the word go as well. Straight from the word go. I love the first question about food banks. Food banks, how many were there in operation when he first came into office? He just didn't seem to know. And he drilled right down into the personal side of the personal effects of the policies he's been advocating over the last five years. So he looked incredibly uncomfortable. Uh, Miliband, I thought he did a lot better. Uh, he had a dodgy bit in the middle where he seemed to wobble. He seemed to be answering questions that weren't being asked. But on the whole, I think he, he revealed a, a political soul that Cameron just has not got. So in the trial by Paxman uh, segment of it, I think uh, Miliband came out on top. That's a pretty decent summary there. Mm. Uh, Kate, let's go back onto Cameron specifically first. Do you think he would have won over any on the fence voters? No, I don't think he would. I just don't think that was a the performance of a leader, really. I think the deep uncomfortableness was just so evident throughout that mm. he just didn't have the same sort of punch and attack. I mean, Miliband's, you know, fighting for this and, you know, with his life, he put everything into it, really, and you didn't get that. And I think when people are so swayed by likability and, and performance on TV, I, I don't think that yesterday will have done David Cameron many favours, but I mean the polls are showing that it's actually not had much of an effect at all. Well interesting, there's one just, just out actually, it's, there was a snap poll which said that uh, Cameron came out on top, I think it was 54 to 46 or 56 to 44, but however more interesting there was a secondary poll which asked people, had you actually been swayed? Mm -hmm. And interestingly it said 56% uh, of people said they might change their vote to Labour as opposed to Cameron uh, said 30%. So in that respect, I think Miliband's won again. I mean, even Nigel Farage praised him for his performance. I mean, high praise indeed. <laughs> well, <laughs> we can say a lot of things about Nigel Farage, but he certainly is a good orator, so <laughs> we'll give him that one. Um, going back onto the food banks then, and I'm, I'm keen to focus on issues that affect the North East specifically. Um, over 66 when Cameron came into power, over 400, like 427 or something mm. similar like that. over 900,000 people have used food banks mm. you know this is a Tory government that keeps telling us the country's better off what evidence is there of this? I think an interesting thing about that was remarkably he tried to take praise for that the fact that so many more people are using food banks because the government specifically him had taken the initiative to signpost them at yeah. job centres. Uh, yeah. Is that true? 
I don't know. You'd have to check that one out. But it was remarkable. Instead of accepting it's a bad state of affairs, he, again, he tried to talk round and fudge the issue. Instead of just holding his hands up saying, yes, this is not an ideal state of affairs for a country so rich as Britain. But instead, he, just, he took the political opt-out by just trying to talk round the subject rather than directly focusing on it and showing he has any ideas how to solve it. Mm. And I think that's where Ed Miliband yesterday... Um, did particularly well in his complete honesty so I think it was on immigration and he was pushed and pushed by Paxman and he just said we got it wrong we got it wrong we got it wrong over and over again to the point where Jeremy Paxman just was a little bit baffled and he didn't know what else to actually ask him because he'd so honestly answered the question he admitted that on immigration that Labour had got things wrong yeah I thought he kind of went a bit too far though I I don't know what you guys think but with Cameron I thought he was avoiding answering the question and he would, wouldn't admit there was any wrongdoing by his government. But with Miliband, I thought he went a little bit too far at times, where he was kind of like, yeah, we got it wrong, and then there was another question, yeah, we got that wrong as well, and yeah, we got that wrong as well. And I just thought, for uninformed voters watching that home, maybe you're admitting that you get too much wrong. Yeah, OK, interesting mm. point. Uh, no, I just appreciated the honesty. It was, it's yeah. rare to hear that, I think. No, I think I agree with Kate. It showed a certain astuteness because he, if he tried to fudge the issue and try to avoid it, he would have been nailed. That's what Paxman was waiting for, mm. for him to try talk around the subject, try explain it or not explain it, and he'd been straight in there. So I think, like Kate said, that left Paxman baffled and mm. that held him, helped him build up a momentum which I think he, he took through to the end. <laughs> he absolutely did, yeah, yeah. I'd say that was the turning point in the mm. interview. He just stormed yeah. on after that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it, okay. Just little um, things he did as well, like he addressed the bacon sandwich incident yeah. first. He, and well, he owned the subject, yeah. didn't he? He owned mm. it, and that was that was really good. Um, another issue that I thought is going to affect a lot of people in the northeast because we are such a student-heavy region, is something that Cameron said that sounded like a campaign slogan, which I'm not sure it was meant to be, when he said... Young people should be learning or earning as soon as they finish school. Um, they shouldn't be able to go straight onto housing or job benefits. I think that's slightly a dangerous policy, and I don't know what you two made of when he said that. I'm sure they'll love to learn or earn when they, they leave school, either go into education or get a job. It's The jobs have to be created by the government, so he has to take some responsibility. It seems like he wants all the responsibility to be taken by the people rather than the government having the responsibility to provide the jobs in the first place. Mm. Another interesting thing about that was Kay Burley. Much talk yes. this morning about it. Yes. I mean, he, uh, Stan Collymore thought she was very biased. You know, Stan, he knows his stuff. <laughs> but the, the whole thing about it, I mean, was struck by when David Cameron came on the difference in his posture between being grilled by Patsman, who's virtually disappearing into his chair, but when he went to the studio audience with Kay Burley asking him a question, he was bouncing around his feet, he was like a boxer, mm. and she was so fawning, it was embarrassing. I mean, the last question she asked him was, uh, have you ever eaten three shredded wheat? I mean, what did that mean? What sort of question is that? And you compare that to when she was actually talking to Miliband, she really went for his throat. Yeah, it was interesting that, and, and obviously watching it at home, it was obviously after the advert break when, uh, when it was still Kay Bailey on, on screen and it was like she'd had the word in the ear from the producer or something be a lot harder this time because I thought she was very easy on Cameron but a lot, lot 
stronger on Miliband. Or you could argue she'd been told to do that, you know, from the very start, and that was all part of getting people to comment, engage, and take part in the battle for number ten as a TV experience. It's a very cynical view, Kate. Was probably true. <laughs> well, uh, she was harking back to, st- for example, this the old chestnut about how Miliband looks. According to Paxman, he looks like a geek. So what? <laughs> a North London geek. <laughs> yes. So what? I mean, I mean, Paxman's not exactly an oil painting himself. Mm. And then uh, Kay Burley harking back. Back to the fact that uh, Ed Miliband uh, stabbed his brother in the back. Is that yeah. true? That, A, that happened five years ago. Yeah. And secondly, it was an open democratic contest. Yeah, I, I thought that was, I thought that the brother comments were slightly below the belt um, from both the studio, the studio audience and, and from Paxman himself. But as um, our, one of our political writers, Rachel Weimar, tweeted last night, people are thinking about it, so why not ask? Yeah, I think that's fair enough. It was shocking to hear it, but actually probably the answer that was given was pretty valuable. He, he was honest again and said, yeah, things have been strained. Hmm. But it's just the, the, the tone and the way he put the question. It's not, how do you react to be calling a geek? It's, you're a geek, aren't you? It's that kind of thing. It's like damning before you can actually answer the question. Yeah, we, and we were talking about this this morning when we came in, Mike, and we, I'm all for hard questioning. It's important in a democracy, but... It felt like Paxman wasn't getting his way with Miliband, so we went straight for personal attacks. Mm. And he, he rained a bit off uh, uh, Cameron. He had a, he had a, a bit of a pop about him employing Stephen Green from the HSBC, mm. who's uh, all the scandals surrounding that. He also uh, said, "I don't mm. think he gets the uh, he gets the tube much." <laughs> no, as a bit of a, as a slight aside. <laughs> yeah, that was, that was interesting. And made slight reference. I don't think he actually named him, but he made reference to employing somebody who was editor of News of the News of the World during the hacking yes. scandal. I don't think he named Andy Coulson. And then the. Uh, he made slight reference to that, mm. as, as with Jeremy Clarkson, but it was almost like a passing comment. Mm. Uh, he really went hard in on Miliband. But again, like we, I think we are all agreed he, he did very well. He, he dealt with it very well. And what was and the final question that Paxman asked, is that a Mike error? Or did he actually mean, is that is that being very cynical, trying to make the leader of the opposition look weak? Are you OK, Ed? Like his question was too tough for him to take conspiracy theories you wondered if he's A trying to induce a get stuffed kind of comment or it was purely by accident I thought again Miliband dealt with that well he said yeah I'm alright are you okay Yeah, good comeback good comeback I mean that was 100% deliberate like he's been (laughs) broadcasting Mm. for a very long time like there is an your mic being off it's not possible you know like you the audience yeah. is still there you're still filming you should know that you you don't throw out questions like that unless you know they're definitely going to be recorded so it was a deliberate thing to make ed look weak okay and we'll go around mike i'll start with you who won who came off the better personally i know i'm slightly biased but i still think Miliband came out best i disagree with the polls which it probably says Cameron won the battle but I think Miliband won the war in winning votes because he proved more persuasive like I said earlier he revealed himself despite these failures during it he made he made he made some failures and some gaffes but overall he revealed a, a soul that we actually haven't seen from him before I think he moved people I think the chances he moved people it was Cameron it was same old same old I think in terms of policy and what you might get after May, I think both of them did quite dreadfully, to be honest. But I think Ed Miliband did well in uh, 
in, in, his, in his personal performance and he has had some absolute shockers and obviously everyone was expecting the worst so it's hard to it's hard to think like did he do really well or did he just do so much better than we expected um, I think overall though like you said there were a few glimpses there of, um, of real true politician showmanship that people like and I think Ed did uh, did himself some favours yesterday but there's a long way to go so yeah. there's so much time ahead where microphones might be left on so we'll see what happens <laughs> yeah it's going to be interesting to see the debate next week where there's going to be seven leaders um, on, on the same screen which will be interesting okay moving on um, to what many will call real politics which is the local politics where things actually get done and affect local people um, we ran a a poll if you want um, a few weeks ago which was which we labelled the North East Manifesto where we put out to the readers the audience what are the issues most important to you um, and I know Mike you've been pulling this all together and collating all this data what have people come back with? It's a fascinating read first of all I mean we're talking about the debate last night we didn't find out what the policies the politicians are going to offer us we've certainly found out with this poll what people want it's there's 30 questions in all covering a range of policies from the economy uh, employment bedroom tax the NHS see what is uppermost in their mind I mean in some ways it is predictable what people are concerned about but there are some surprises in there for example people want to reveal people to protect the NHS they want the bedroom tax scrapped now, interestingly, in that, whereas they voted for it, an interesting degree of people said they understand the principle behind it, but they think it's not been implement, implemented correctly. People can see the logic in uh, a two-person family living in a four-bedroom house when there's a, a four- or five-person family, they should have it. But they think it's been too strict, too hard. Another thing, austerity. People seem to agree that austerity measures were needed but they've gone way too far so you often glimpses into the way people are thinking people aren't so cut and dried everyone thought when we asked these questions people in all these would be hard down on the government hard down on this but they haven't they showed a certain a, a, a certain initiative and a certain level of intelligence that this actually shines through on this so it's a fascinating read. i'm still working through all the details of it but it's going to make a fascinating read when it's broken down and we publish it next yeah, it's week it's sort of like the region's response in really tough tough economic mm. times that haven't been seen for several decades mm. and yeah you think the psyche might be well everything everything is happening to the northeast and we are getting such a bad deal but yeah i think the understanding and the rationale of some of the policies that have come out of the fact there is just no money left have been quite telling really yeah it is i mean the level of sophistication is, is great uh, not that we doubted it at all in the mm. first place, but it, it just shines through with this. You can just assume that mm. the narrative would be that the North East thinks it hasn't had a fair deal over the last five years, but um, it's a far more complicated picture than that. Mm. And also, mm. I mean, you couldn't really place it vote-wise either, could you? It's not... It, mm. it's, it, I don't think the manifesto has shown, oh, well, our, our readers are likely to vote in this way. I think it's shown it's extremely complex... It extremely is. varied, just like the election's going to be. And, and very well-informed readers as well. If you look mm. at the answers that they've been given, they know what they're talking about. Very well-informed. It's not Labour, downright, outright, outright Labour. There's, there's certain nods towards uh, Conservatives, Lib Dems, even UKIP, dare I say, with, with, with the EU. And for those who um, don't know, the listeners that don't know, the readers that don't know, what's the point behind this manifesto? What are we going to do when we've, when we've whittled it down to the most important issues? What are we going to do with it? We're going to start off, I believe, you can correct me if I'm wrong, Chris, on Monday it goes online to give a summary of the major findings 
and then for the next six days we're going to break it down into various categories to really drill down into the points made, get reaction to it. So the first part is very much letting the people speak. They take the time to actually fill out this form. Uh, over a thousand people took part, so it's very extensive. And then after that, we get the reaction from the politicians at the local organisation to say, what do they think about this? Mm. I mean, it's, it's only 30-odd days towards the next general election. This really gives a flavour of what the North East people are wanting. And it's taking control of what we're t- of the issues that we're talking about. It's not letting the politicians talk about the issues they want to talk about. It's taking the issues that the people want to talk about and saying, well, okay, we understand what you're doing with that, but what are you, about, what are you going to do about this? This is what people care about, and this is what needs so on. Well, that's why right. they're not whinging, not sort of feeling sorry for themselves, the old grim up north or chestnut. They're actually saying, this is what we want. We want to be given the chance to help ourselves. And this is evidence in the survey. Great read, great read. It's well worth reading from next week. I'd, I'd recommend people actually have a look at it. You learn a lot about the people of the North. Brilliant. And um, talking about the North East politics, Keith, last night you were at a council meeting and where the council were discussing a variety of different things as usual. But one of the things that has been brought up this week is the boundaries might be changing within Newcastle. Can you kind of give us an explanation of what that means? Sure. So Newcastle City Council has 78 councillors at the moment in 26 wards and um, the government wrote a letter to the council in October 2014 um, saying that it it was possible that they might need to have a look at the city and have a look at a review because population shifts over the last decade have been so significant that some wards have you know are packed full of people and some wards have a dwindling population so it would be about rebalancing who is represented where in the city um, this happened in the 1970s it also happened in 2004 at which point it was very helpful for the Liberal Democrats that really helped them get more votes when the boundaries were shifted around um, Basically, at the moment, as it stands, um, Newcastle City Council has been told that it needs to um, have a review, or at least there needs to be a discussion around the table of how the city is going to be best represented in the future. However, Newcastle City Council says they actually don't have any uh, wards in the city which aren't um, correctly represented. There are enough people for each individual councillor to represent in the right way. I find that really difficult to believe at the moment because... The average for each ward should be should be around 7,800 people. And at the moment, you've got some wards like in Oosburn, in Oosburn that has 13,000 people living there. So for the council to say that they, there's no issue at all in terms of like representation, um, I find that a little bit difficult at the moment. But we'll see over the coming weeks because obviously general election coming up, um, we'll, we'll see what happens with this. Any, any, for any council, though, the fact that there could be some reductions on the horizon or there could be a change around in boundaries is really significant at a local level. Well, how will this affect the people on the streets, or will it at all? Will they notice any difference? Yeah, it depends how engaged you are, really. But, I mean, I live in, um, I live in a Jesmond ward at the moment, and that's one of the wards that has a dwindling population, um, or at least in terms of people on the electoral register, um, that could be one that shifts around, the boundaries could change. I could find that the councillor who I speak to on the doorstep in a few you know, in a few weeks could change, something like that. Um, it's, it could change who, who represents you. You could end up with a Liberal Democrat ward councillor, or you could end up with a Labour ward councillor. Like, you could see some shifts. I think from... So potentially people that you haven't voted for? No, 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 it's not not in that sense, but um, it's to do with um, who your ward councillors are and 
um, what also the feeling of where you are geographically within the city. So, you know, wards have been created in the past, huge wards like Castle, that actually includes a bit of Gosforth, that kind of thing. It's about um, where people feel they are connected to. Some wards at the moment connect two very different parts of the city together. They might be geographically close together, but, you know, in terms of, the, of who lives there, things can be quite different. So whenever they look at these boundaries, it comes into questions, who do you identify yourself with? Are you, for me, are you a Jesmond person or are you a Heaton person? It's, it just comes up with that, those kind of arguments. Great. Okay. Um, moving on. Another thing, this was an issue about a month, six weeks ago, but it finally came to Newcastle uh, yesterday, is the pink, sorry, magenta bus that Labour are using, the uh, <laughs> women to women uh, campaign that they've got going, trying to get more women into politics and out voting this summer. Kate, you being the only woman in the, in, <laughs> in the, in the room at the moment, pink bus, magenta bus, whatever, whatever shade you want to call it, is this going to get more women to vote or is this simply demeaning and patronising? Well, it's interesting because they had to, in Newcastle, Catherine McKinnell, um, she fronted this one because I'd imagine Chion Wura, um, who's MP for Newcastle Central, wouldn't have gone near this because all the work she's done recently is about trying to create... Um, you know, genderless colours in terms of children's toys and in terms of clothing. So obviously you've got one woman in Newcastle who absolutely would probably want to have nothing to do with it at all. But then you've got Catherine McKinnell who came out and did a very good job, I thought, yesterday, um, actually engaging with women on the streets. Um, I think personally, actually, I'd, I'd, I don't find it demeaning. I think what's been irritating is the, like, sort of, just the conversations around the colour of the bus. And I just think, be really honest, just call it pink and just say it's pink because that, you know, that attracts women. If that's what the thinking is, just be honest about it. I mean, you've seen, like, people on TV interviews, they are directly asked, what colour is that bus? And they just can't answer it. So I was glad that Catherine McKinnell said it was magenta. Um, but at the same time, there's been, other, there's been other explanations that actually that really hot colour pink, that's just the colour of the Labour Party's sort of literature. That's a brand colour that they were using anyway. Um... But I just think, be honest, you know, honest about what you're doing. I think, to be honest, it's eye-catching. It looks good on a newspaper print page, and I think that people <laughs> will have definitely, um, people will have noticed it, so it probably has had some kind of result. Yeah. Well, you certainly knew it was coming. Yeah, the yeah, the hype, so the hype it, around it, the controversy, I mean... So we spent five minutes talking about the bus, right, wrong, but then we actually probably speak about the issues. So, in that ways, it could be successful. What, what issues are there going to be that are going to get women to the polls this summer? Health, NHS. Um, I, I find it very difficult, though. I don't think there are female-specific policies. Exactly. This is what my problem is with the whole idea of the pink boss. I think it's just issues. As you said, there's two women um, who are completely different, completely different views about the pink boss, which show... That well, we're in assuming itself. they have different views on yeah, the pink bus. Yeah, but, uh, but we, I think it's right to assume that all women have different views about everything. You know, women are, oh, it's a pink bus. It's not going to be like a fly to a, to a light, you know, do you know what I mean, mm -hmm. or a moth to a lamp, and they're going to be all attracted to it. And, oh, now I'll vote. Because you've got a pink bus, now I'll vote Labour. I just think it's a silly issue. Yeah, but it's... But honestly, it's quite friendly and it's quite kind of nice. <laughs> so, like, what do I mean? The Conservatives do they? They don't have a bus going around the country with women on. 
That's very true. And yeah, okay, fair enough. At least they're talking about the issues. <laughs> it's, very, it's a good point. At least they're talking about the issues, which is great. I don't know. I think you can say that it's patronising to women, but I'd have to be honest, I think it'll have stuck in people's minds. Well, is it patronising to do something or patronising not to do something? So in that respect, it's a positive thing. There are many issues relating to women health. I mean, I've done things that stand out to me. I do the unemployment figures um, every every month and a subsidiary to that is wage levels and women are still not paid as much as men on average. Another, another major issue, I mean considerably less than men. So that's, that's another issue that could be perhaps discussed via the pink bus outlet. I mean it could have been a red bus. It could have been. It, why not? Yeah, it really. Could I, I, that's what I saw the, the leaflets. The idea of engaging yeah. with women through the means of a roadshow bus is not bad. Mm. <laughs> it's just I can see why the colour pink has yeah, been an the issue. The leaflets came into the office yesterday because um, Katie Davies, our chief reporter, went out to cover this story, and she came up with a loads of leaflets for everyone um, that she was asked to give out, which she didn't. She just put them on the desk. But there was a pink pink leaflet there, and I was looking at it, going, "Why couldn't this have been Labour red?" There was no reason it couldn't. Anyway, we'll move on. Okay, and I think we'll leave it there for this week. Um, I'd like to thank thank Mike and Kate uh, for once again joining us, and we'll speak to you next week. All the best. You okay, Chris? Uh, Yeah, you? Not so bad. (laughs)